This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Shouldn't you be at home? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. You can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Panister and Bruce in the queue again. Bruce scores! Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Hello and welcome back to Now That's What I Call Quickly Kevin. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, Josh Widdicombe. Hello. How are we both? Very, very well. What have you been doing with the lockdown, Michael? Uh, I have been doing two things. One's football yep. related, one's not. The first one that isn't is I've been making um, ice cubes made of pesto. <laughs> <laughs> How are they? Bought, bought far too much pesto. Well, I haven't defrosted them yet, so, you know, I'll wait and see in about six months. So is it so. pure pesto, or are you putting some water in to help it freeze? No, no, it's pure, it's pure pesto. It's quite exciting. What? And is it frozen? Uh, I haven't checked. I, I put them in the uh, ice cube tray, wrapped it in um, yeah. foil so it wasn't exposed, and I just tucked it away. So yeah. look forward to finding that in about two years. Uh, what are you going to do? What Are you putting these in a drink? Well, people keep asking me that, and I haven't got that far. So I don't really know. I'm obviously not going to make a sort of pesto martini. <laughs> And then the other thing I've been doing is I bought a uh, Lego Old Trafford. Uh, a lot of people are getting into Lego. Yeah, it's a sort of fake Lego Old Trafford. But the pieces are about, I'd say, a third to half the size. So it's really fiddly. Like, really fiddly. Uh, it's quite stressful, in fact. <laughs> I it's quite like Maybe I'll do, I wonder if there's a home park. There's not going to be a home park, is there? <laughs> Would you do an Olympic Stadium one, Scar? I don't know if I've got it in me to do a 3D puzzle. I've recently just done a 1,000-piece jigsaw for the first time in my life. It's good, isn't it, doing a jigsaw? It is good, but there's so many different phases of frustration towards it. You've got that initial phase where you're just looking for corners and edge bits, and then the next bit where you're just picking up individual pieces, trying to place them, and then towards the end where you just want to get it done. I I wouldn't say it's necessarily an enjoyable experience. What do you do with it at the end? Just you look here for a second, fold it all up, put it back in the box. What a waste of time. <laughs> it's a waste of time, isn't it? Everything's a waste of time, Michael. Everything <laughs> is a waste of time. <laughs> Everything is arbitrary. Nothing, nothing is that important. Right. Talking of that, do you want an email about Richard Keys? <laughs> Can we get the jingle, please? 
I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Postbag. You've got mail. This is from Nick Raphael. Hi, lads. I listened to your Clive Tilsley episode today and heard the Richard Keyes story before the interview. I never thought I'd repeat this story, especially 30 years later, but every year at my secondary school in St Albans, the first 11 would have a game against a John Motson scratch team of ex-athletes, footballers and TV personality. I played in this game once before. It was mildly competitive and normally a walkover, men against boys, John's team being the men. This year, we had the best team in years. Many of us were playing high-level, competitive, representative football. John was always a total gentleman. Competitive, plus coached and commentated the whole game from fullback, which was hysterical. But this one particular year was marked by the arrival of the one and only Richard Keyes of TVAM. Our art teacher... Mr. David Willisey, a professional referee, took charge of the game. And with a substitute either side acting as a linesman, little did any of us know what was about to happen. The game started. Our centre forward passed the ball to me in the centre of midfield. I did my Ray Wilkins style sideways pass, only to find myself flat on my back, having travelled several feet of the air, according to their linesman and my teammates, to have a two-footed late challenge by Richard Keyes. He then proceeded in standing over me and telling me to get up and stop acting. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Willisey missed the challenge, stopped the game, asked what had happened, and all parties said he had taken me out. He argued with everyone. Several of his teammates begged him to calm down. <laughs> now, with both of us incensed, the game continued. Every time I got the ball, he came looking for me. He was like Norman Hunter on heat. As the first half was coming to a close, I nutmegged him in the middle of the park and announced Megs. He grabbed the back of my shirt and wrestled me to the ground. By now, the game had descended into chaos. At half-time, Mr. Willisey had to ask John Watson to substitute Richard Keyes. <laughs> which he did, but Richard remonstrated and threatened to wait for me afterwards. Oh, my God. The second half took place without incident, except for Richard continuing to try and goad me from the sidelines and parents having to tell him to go home. I believe the John Watson 11 game never happened after that again. And it's a shame it was a highlight of my school calendar. Regards, Nick. Wow. I like Richard Keyes. He's a competitor. <laughs> He's an intense personality. What I like about Richard Keyes, if, if ever I see an interview, you know, I think there was one on The Athletic a couple of months ago, when you see that Richard Keyes has done another interview about how happy he is in Qatar. It's absolutely the best read you can possibly have. <laughs> All of the quotes about, well, we get more viewers now than we did then. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. I've gone so full circle on him. Because all of his opinions and the stuff he used to put out really, used to really annoy me. But now I love that he's out there doing it. Every opinion he's got, I'm like, of course Richard Keyes thinks that. <laughs> I love him I as love a character. Him. I love him. I love him. I love him. Um, Just one more thing on Richard Keyes. Do you think him and Andy Gray actually get on? They're kind of like two baddies. I'm thinking, what's a 90s two baddies? Krang and Shredder. <laughs> Individually. <laughs> Bebop and Rocksteady. Bebop and Rocksteady. Would we have Richard Keyes on here to talk about some of those incidents in those I think before games? we approached him, we'd probably delete all of the <laughs> previous episodes where we told stories about it. Like, do you want some 90s teams? Yes. Okay, this is one called 90s 11 of Uncapped Englishmen. Whilst trying to create an ultimate 90s 11, it struck me that a lot of English players from the 90s were established in the Premier League, but never anywhere near the national team. In contrast with over the last 20 years, the influx of foreign players, uh, it seems that any English player who can hold down a place at a top five club is likely to find at least a couple of caps coming their way. With that in mind, I thought I'd create 
and 11 of those reasonably successful players who never got the chance to fail miserably for England. Some of them have won major honours. This is from Patrick Jenkinson. Obviously, I'm fully on board with this as a uh, concept. Um, do you want me to run you through it, or do you want to have a couple? any guesses? Steve Bruce? He said, I didn't consider Steve Bruce, oh, who feels oh, too okay, obvious. Sorry. sorry. Uh, I'm going to say little Alan Wright. No, is he left back, little Alan Wright? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say he's possibly better than the... He's got a good left-back, though. Do you want me to run you through the team? Yeah. yeah. Goalkeeper, Tony Coton. Right-back, David May. No, he's not a right-back. He's squeezed him in. He squeezed him in. All right, centre-back, Paul Warhurst. I think good pick. Centre-back, Ian Pearce. Left-back, John Beresford. Right midfield, Vinnie Samways. Vinnie Samways would have definitely represented England these days. Mark Atkins and John Eberle in centre-midfield. Left-midfield our Lord Gavin Peacock, and up from Chris Armstrong and Lee Chapman, who would have definitely played for England these days. I've got an interesting thing on that. I th- I've read a thing about Tony Coton. Are you aware of this thing about Tony Coton not getting an England cap? No. We discussed this before. Now, this is one of those things where, it's a do I remember this right, but Graham Taylor or someone was going to pick him, but didn't pick him because there was a chairman who would have had to pay out a bonus and asked Graham Taylor not to give Tony Coton a cap. Really? Because it would have led... Yeah, I'm sure I read about that. I don't think we've covered that. I don't remember that. Yeah. So, Tony Coton played for Watford under Graham Taylor, and then Graham Taylor tried to sign him for Aston Villa. So when he thought when Graham Taylor became England manager, he thought, my ship's come in here. I think he was the most expensive goalkeeper at the time, anyway. But according to uh, Harrison, uh, England coaching staff member Steve Harrison... Manchester City's chairman and FA bigwig put the squeeze on Graham not to pick Coton as they would have to pay Watford an extra £350,000 bonus if he made a senior England appearance. So the Man City chairman didn't want to pay the international fee bonus, international cap bonus, so asked Graham Taylor not to pick Tony Coton for the England team. God, you'd be Remarkable. livid. If you were Tony Coton, you'd be absolutely livid. That's mad, isn't it? That would be heartbreaking if you're Tony Coton, but there we go. You know, worse things have happened. I'm fascinated by players who have things in their contract that ultimately become prohibitive to their career. So do you remember like Seth Johnson when he when he went to Dart was it Leeds? He was on such a high uh, league appearance bonus that he was sitting at Leeds, but they re- they couldn't afford to play him. Oh, what? Because he was on an appearance bonus? Because he was on an appearance fee. So they, they couldn't, they basically just couldn't afford to play him even though he was kind of on a wage. My, my favourite one is um, when players have uh, a clause in their contract that means if they play a certain amount of games in a season it automatically renews for another year so you'll get these players especially players that are sort of older and the club wants rid of them who they're desperate they've got no center forwards available but this sort of 37 year old center forward <laughs> is one game away from getting an automatic renewal and the club are like no we can't pick him like we can't play it <laughs> if you have any reasons to get in touch with us this is how you get in touch get in touch with the show Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Great. Okay, then. So before we get into our best bits, we have a bit of an announcement. We've got a couple of new formats we're going to try out. Starting with next Tuesday, we're going to introduce the Quickly Kevin Film Club. We're going to be watching a series of 90s football-based films. And the first one up is probably the gold standard for 90s football films. It's when Saturday comes featuring that Sheffield United 
top man, Sean Bean, when Saturday comes next Tuesday. And then on Thursday, we're going to follow that up with our first ever quiz that is designed to be played along at home. That means no one buzzing in, giving the answers away. You'll be able to hit play, get a notepad and pen, and try and get the best score you can. So that's coming next Thursday too. Watch when Saturday comes before Tuesday, and then you can watch along with us, kind of, you know. You'll know what we're talking about. And get your friends... Well, don't get your friends around. That is an awful piece of advice for the quiz. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't get your friends around. Don't meet up in a park to play the quiz. I cannot emphasise that enough. But now, enough of all that. It's time for some more best bits. First up, Pat Nevin tells us about the time he met Saddam Hussein and all of his dealings with Ken Bates. We'd like to start every uh, episode with a the same quiz question. Go on. We'd like you to run us through uh, your shirt sponsors throughout your career. And did you get anything free from them? <laughs> um, now, I've Googled remember. you at Clyde, and I don't think you had a sponsor. No, nope. first year at Chelsea, no sponsor. Oh, really? Um, no. Um, first one with Chelsea was Golf Air. Um, oh, yeah. I vaguely yeah. remember that one. Get a free flight? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> however, however, we did go to Baghdad. Oh, did you, team. to promote it? Well, yeah, it was something got to do with that. So we ended up going over to um, Baghdad, Day of the game, turn up at three o'clock in the afternoon. Everyone's there. Team, their team, the Iraqi national team. Yeah. 40,000 people, referee, everyone, 100 degrees heat. Nothing happens. We all just stand there. And we stand there. And we stand there. Half past three, we're still standing there. You can't warm up because it's boiling. Anyway, at four o'clock, we were allowed to carry on. And the reason being, we had to wait for the guest of honour to turn up. A chap called Saddam Hussein. Oh, wow! <laughs> wow! So we ended up meeting Saddam afterwards. You met Saddam Hussein? Yeah, yeah. I mean, did, did you confirm him to Ken Bates? <laughs> You've took the words in my mouth. They, I think they were long lost brothers. I think in many ways they have so much in common. We do the game, we finish it, we draw 1 1. We got them to get a trophy, which is the size of this wine glass. Yeah. They got them to get theirs, which is bigger than me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and in the next day's papers, they won 2 1. Oh, really? Yes. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> they did. That's amazing. It's great. Ken, Ken's, uh, Ken and I had the strangest relationships. I think he's got strange relationships with everyone. Uh, but, but we, it's an odd one because it's not a, a, a we don't dislike each other. We Do were, you like each other? No. Did I say that too quickly? <laughs> Well, the reason being, and I think it all came one day, it was two days, I did ask to get taken off in a game at half-time to go and see a gig, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and he was quite confused about this. And, um, it was the Cocteau talk- Twins. Yeah. yeah. And you asked when negotiating your new contract yes. to come off at half-time to see them at Royal Albert Hall? Yeah. Well. The contract negotiations, those were the weirdest ones that I had with Ken. Right. When um, I went into his office. Now, I've never had an agent. Yeah. So I went to his office and he said, right, um, no, he asked me and he said, right, we, you need you in a new contract. And I was, I'd signed a two year, I'd done a year, I got player of the year, a bit weirdly, because they weren't even expecting me to get in the first team. So he said, you need to sign a new contract. And I went, I don't think I need to, but you know, if you offer me one, he goes, well, well you need a new contract. I said, Good, what are you offering me? He says, no, no, that's not how it works. You need to tell us your demands. And I went, I'm not the demanding type of chap, you know. <laughs> you've brought me in to offer. Anyway, this toed and froed for a while. I said, Look, I'll go away and I'll come Are you back. nervous in this situation? No, I couldn't give a stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bored. I can play football for the love of it somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. It didn't matter if I'm paid or not. I wasn't paid much anyway. 
Yeah. So Cambridge, um, he said, I had to go away and think about what to have. So I went away, got an A4 sheet of paper and typed out what I wanted. And, I'd, you know... Well, so can you tell us what you'd uh, written on that? Okay, so I'd, I was on £180 a week beforehand. After tax, you're about 100 110 My yeah. rent was £100 a week. Yeah. There was no money for food unless we won. <laughs> Fortunately, we won every week that year because yeah. we were in a league and got promotion. So I could have done with some more money. But, you know, well, I'm a camp student. I just, as long as I can get to gigs, I'm fine. And, and anyway, so I go in the next day and I've got the back paper. So I've now asked for 500 quid a week, <laughs> four or five flights a year back to Scotland. Yeah. And that's about it, really. Yeah. So I've came in, put it on the table. Ken's picked it up, looked at it, scrunched it up, threw it in the bin, stood up, walked out, slammed the door, jumped into his Rolls Royce Cornish and drove away. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, that didn't really go great, did it? <laughs> and I'm sitting there and he's, he's not even, he didn't even say hello. So he's gone before we got to hello. Wow. And I'm sitting there. So he made one basic schoolboy error. Yeah. He forgot I came from the East End of Glasgow. <laughs> so I did what everyone from the East End of Glasgow would do. I rifled through his drawers. And I found every single contract of every single player. Amazing. <laughs> 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 and that night, I'd done a mean, median, and more average of them all. <laughs> so I come in the next day and he goes, he was, have you thought any more about that? And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's not 500. I want £517.50. And he went, you're having a laugh. What are you... Nobody's on that. And I went, you're right, nobody's on that, but it's the average. And he went, you can't know what the average is. And I said, yeah, I can. I rifle through your drawers. I know what everyone's on. <laughs> and he just looked at me as if I said... <laughs> that is amazing. Brilliant. It's yours. Give me. Oh wow! <laughs> so oh. that's the Ken. That's the other yeah. side of Ken. The, See, oh. And we always had this kind of kind of respect because of it. Yeah. After that, it's like heat, you know, De Niro and Pacino. Yeah. And <laughs> Next up, Ellis James talks us through Swansea City and the Vetch in the run-up to the nineties. What's the state of Swansea City in the nineties? It's a, it's quite an interesting decade. If I can give you a. a potted history of the club we were uh, for about 40 years a, a quite a solid Division 2 team as in old 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 second yeah. tier Division 2 which I think when you look at the size of the city and the catchment area of the club and the fact that you know, rugby union is, is big as well that that probably suits us I think and then we had to re- apply for re-election to the Football League in 75 and then John Toshat became our player manager and we went 4-3-2-1 in four years then we came sixth in the first division, having been leaders at Easter. So it looked, it looked oh like we were going to win it. So we were top from the very first game. We beat Leeds 5-1 in the opening day of the season. So we're top until Easter, and we lost five out of the last six and came oh. sixth, which was the lowest we'd been all season. And the thing is, the early 80s, Ipswich had won the UEFA Cup, Forest mm. had won the European Cup. It, it was kind of something that could happen in those days. So what you're saying is you'd probably have won the European Cup as well. Well, we went we went four three two one one two three four. So we were in all four <laughs> divisions twice in eight years. <laughs> so we, we replied apply So the, when you were top at Easter you then went into free fall and were relegated the following the season. The following season, oh. yeah, yeah. Wow. So seventy five apply for re election to the football league, which is quite a close run thing because yeah. we're so far west, I imagine Plymouth have this problem. Clubs didn't actually want to play us. And also in, in the early 70s, we had quite a good side. So you might get 20,000 or 20, 
two or 23,000 at the batch and then two years later there's 1,500 there. <laughs> so the thing with going 4-3-2-1 in four years and then having a really good season, um, the kind of foundations were built on sand really. So it's, it's all sellouts for a season and then the club are dreadful and then it's down to 3,000 again and then the club got wound up on Boxing Day, I think, or Christmas Eve, 1985. And then in the 90s, we were just a low-division team, so we were just dreadful. It was a car crash. What like. was the Vetch like? The Vetch was... Because I've walked past it, I it looked awful. I loved it, <laughs> but... How, how how bad were the Rout- facilities? Routinely voted the worst toilets in the Football League. So how bad were they? It was a trough. <laughs> <laughs> I once and what met, were the urinals like? I once met... <laughs> I once, I once met a bloke. I once met a bloke who'd had a shit at the vetch, and I shook him by the hand. <laughs> this is a this is a favourite subject of mine. Because I never had a poo at Upton Park no, until the no, last no. game ever there. Look. I'm like, no, it's a blessed relief for the Olympic Stadium. Yeah, yeah. The toilets are nice in the ground. Yeah. Do you know what? The thing with the there's still there's still a toilet at Argyle. So Argyle have got three sides of. Identikit new ground as you imagine it and then one the old grandstand the toilets which are just a wall literally you know you walk in there's a wall and then there's what would it be just a drain I suppose yeah 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 and it just it's been there a hundred years being pissed <laughs> yeah yeah a <laughs> hundred years imagine that being pissed on for a hundred years do you know how I would sum up the vetch all our most vocal fans used to stand on the north bank which ran along the side of the pitch and it was a very, very big stand, very big terrace at one point. But then it was condemned, the final two thirds were condemned by the council. So they just built, <laughs> they just built a plywood wall about a third of the way up. <laughs> because they, because they, they were, they were, there were holes in the floor. And the plywood wall was sponsored by Monster Munch. <laughs> Which flavor? It was, it was, it was the, the purple, well, that's, that's pickled onion, pickled onion isn't it? <laughs> So I never got to stand on the North Bank in, in all its glory because that happened in the late 80s. So what were the pit? Was it like proper Monster Munch kind of mural? It was a very... Like that Arsenal mural, but with monsters. <laughs> yeah. So it was a very big uh, terrace that held about 20,000 at one point. So then they built this wall a third of the way up, this plywood wall that was sponsored by Monster Munch. <laughs> and people used to chuck their burgers over the wall. Yeah. Oh, no. And then in the final game, we played at the match against uh, Shrewsbury. Some people started pulling the wall down. I went and had a look and stood at the back. <laughs> and it was quite interesting because there were these huge gaping holes and it would have cost the club a quarter of a million quid to men. So obviously it wasn't financially viable. But there were these big holes. You think, how did they let it get into this state in the first place? But the, the, the thing I really liked was there was a lot of graffiti from the early 80s. It was a kind of a time capsule because they built the Monster Munch wall and had just left it. So there was all like Alan There was Curtis. one guy still in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on, Living on the pies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you had the, the away end, which I don't remember this, but it, was, it had been a double-decker that was made of wood. So it was a twin-tier stand. And then that the top of it was condemned by the council. <laughs> So what they did was they just removed the top. So it was replaced a, it with a monster munch roof. <laughs> no, but what happened if you stood in the away end, you'd look up and there'd be stairwells leading to nowhere. <laughs> and just these these footwells go into a stand that no longer existed. Exist. And finally, Graham Massaud tells us about the Blackburn training ground and his time at the title winning club. 
You said a minute ago, like, you know, Blackburn was so much more professional, but there's a quirk about your training ground that I really hope is true in Pleasanton. So there was a local cemetery and crematorium nearby and a yeah. road between the training pitches that led to them. And at regular intervals, a funeral party would drive down the road and you'd have to stop mm. training to pay your respects. It was, yeah, it was not so much that we stopped training. We sort of, you know, you'd hesitate a little bit because obviously it's slightly yeah, awkward, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, of course. But more, more noticeable than that was the fact that on the way back down, they'd all be out the windows wishing us best of luck for the next, you know. <laughs> I think a lot, I, I think a few of the funeral cortejas had, had scarves underneath their, their suits and everything. And they were waving out and maybe stopping for a few autographs and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, it was a public park, so people walked their dogs on there. Really? Um, they'd be, you know, have to clear up the crap. Um, wow. And you're the Premier League champions or Super well, League. Well, we were, we were sort of that was that 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 was the first two seasons. I think the year we won the league was the year we moved to uh, Brockle, the, the training mm. ground that they've got now, which was phenomenal. I remember there was some guy with a it was either a falcon or a, 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 an owl of some sort training his owl whilst we're trying, we're, we're trying to train and he's yeah. letting his owl off and flipping out. Alan Wright Alan Wright could have been taken away could have been plucked, plucked from left back yeah. never seen again so up a tree somewhere Kenny's like keeping the ball on the floor you yeah. can't hit the absolutely. owl absolutely Kenny Dabley started giving the falcon tips criticising yeah. it yeah, absolutely tip. yeah absolutely wow. so um so it was it was really it was really random and what we used to do we used to have to change we used to have to go to the stadium to mm. Eatwood Park get changed there car share Wow, so you're driving to, to Pleasanton. So who's in your car? Not to Pleasanton, as I like yeah. to call it. Well, it was whoever you just used to rotate it, you know. Yeah. The problem was none of us wanted to drive because invariably you get either f just full of dirt, yeah, or yeah. you could end up sliding tackling some dog poo. Yeah. And you don't want people in your leather seats and your Volkswagen Golf <laughs> you, on the way back, you know. So I was I was always a reluctant designated driver. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what we used to do, and we did it for ages. And the kits, if you ever came round to my cottage. Yeah. You would see a clothes horse with at least three kits on it, wow. just drying out at any stage. You know, that's and insane. And you're on, you're in the Premier League. Yeah, but the it, great, you know, the great thing was we were did all you ever in it shrink together. Your kit, no, I didn't because it was so robust and heavy. It was, <laughs> yeah. it was like a rugby shirt. Oh yeah, I I it was a rugby yeah, shirt yeah. with a collar and buttons. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we had big long shorts that were. I mean, it took hours and hours to dry it. I mean, I went through three tumble dryers <laughs> in, in my time at Blackburn. It was so heavy. But to be fair, everybody did it. It wasn't like Kenny was getting his done at the local, you know, by somebody at the local laundry yeah. or. Was Alan Shearer genuinely getting? Because yeah. I suspect yeah. he was getting Mike Newell to do it. Like, Maybe <laughs> yeah, Mike Newell did everything for Elstrom, didn't he? All his running. So Mike, you can do the kit as well. Yeah, <laughs> he would have done, I think. <laughs> yeah. So summer of 94, it begins. Mm. You're about to win the league. One of the big um, reasons why, obviously, Chris Sutton signing. You mm. mentioned him a minute ago. But did he, him and Shearer get on? Were they mates? There was, there was a little bit of friction. Yeah. Because Mike Newell and, and Alan were really close. Mm. There was a group of them, the Southport Massive. <laughs> <laughs> One of the worst garage groups I've ever heard. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So who's in the Southport Massive? <laughs> so you had Tim Flowers. Yeah. Um, Alan Shearer. Yeah. yeah. Mike Newell. Yeah. Uh, Kenny lived over there as well. Yeah. So that was where... All the, the Liverpool players lived. Yeah, there, that's where the wealthy... That, yeah, but that was yeah. where the wealthy Blackburn players lived. Right. Because they could afford the petrol to drive in. <laughs> but they were the... Yeah, you always felt that they knew a bit more about who the team was going to be on a right. Saturday than the rest of us. Because they, you know, they'd, they'd be around, you know, live near the manager. <laughs> so, so you won the league. Like, yes. in dramatic fashion, obviously. Mm. You, you lose to Liverpool, but um, West Ham, my team, a draw with Man United, yep. and deliver you the league. 
What do you remember? Give that, you the lead. <laughs> After 40 <laughs> games, yeah, West Ham gave us the lead. You own it. You own it. I should, have, I should have just handed my medal straight to you. Straight to Tony Gale. Well, Tony Gale oh, Tony was there. Tony, Tony Gale was a Blackburn. He was. Because that, that kind of the drama of that last day when you're listening to a score from another game, I mean, how, how, what do you remember? Oh, it was that? the most awful experience. To win the league in that situation was just absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Because... Did your game finish first? Or no, something? theirs finished first. Theirs oh. finished just before we conceded... Uh, no, just after we'd conceded the second goal. So we were going back to the halfway line with our heads down, having thought Manchester United must have beaten West Ham, all due respect. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we presume Manchester United had won or were about to win, and we just conceded a second goal. And I don't think we'd been out of our half, the whole second half up at Anfield. And it was as we were walking back towards the halfway line to restart the game um, that our fans went from being utterly morbid and desperate and suicidal to then this ripple of like sort of positive energy. Yeah. And they're t- talking, and then they start jumping up and down. I'm thinking, well, they've clearly lost the plot. <laughs> um, and then it sort of it worked its way. It was a bit like a Mexican wave, you know, going across. It sort of missed the Liverpool fans out of it, yeah. but then it got to our bench, and and you saw them start getting up, and, and we're like, what's going? And then we realised what had happened that they'd obviously um, the game had been drawn. Mm. Um, and I can't remember for the life of me who the referee was. But a couple of the players were saying, look, just blow up, just blow up. And he's like, no, 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 you've got, you know, one minute left or <laughs> 18 left. Sounds like David Ellery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it must be. Yeah. And, um, and we had to kick off and just go through the motions. Of, really? Uh, Did people we're just like, oh, come on, let's get the trophy. Where's the trophy? Where's the champagne? Because <laughs> it was such a relief because we'd, we'd absolutely bottled it <laughs> in the previous weeks leading up to that. Because we had a, I think we had a nine point lead oh. or... And we were playing so well, and then we, you know, we lost a game, and Ferguson started, you know, he was doing all the mind games on, you know, on, on, on the TV and on the radio. And then you start, you get to that point in the season where you start actually thinking and, and listening out for, for your closest rivals' results, because we didn't have that experience as a group of players. Um, yeah. And Manchester United were phenomenal. I mean, they won it the two years before, they won it the year after, with, you know, that, that, that Man United squad was arguably the best team Manchester United have had. I mean, I suppose you could say 99, yeah. where they won the treble. But, I mean, that team was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it would have been so dispiriting to have lost it on the last game of the season. Yeah. We deserved to win it. We really did. Um, I always like to ask this question. Where do you keep your medal? Um, I keep, well, everything I've won, I keep in a Adidas bag <laughs> in the loft. <laughs> really? Yeah. Do you make well, a little display? display no. It's just not um, something that I feel I need to remind myself of. You know, until, I don't mean I don't appreciate it. I mean, crikey. You know, I, I, being part of a club that has won the Premier League or won the trophies that I've won or played for England the amount of times I have, I think being part of that is phenomenal. I don't need, a, I don't need to look at that sort of um, something to remind me of that. It doesn't make me less proud. It's just I don't think it's I don't think it's about me. And I mean, can you imagine trying to hoover around your England caps? That's been a nightmare. Those tassels. Always go up the Dyson again. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's it for today. That's enough best bits. We'll be back on Monday with. Dave Besson. It is a cracking episode. Really, really good. Well, it's time to end these episodes as we always do. Josh, have you got the Des Lynham CD to hand? I do. And can I have number 17? Des, 
Take it away. And we'll be back Monday. Until then, Robbie Slater, see you later. How straight it flew, how long it flew. It cleared the rutty track and soaring disappeared from view beyond the bunker's back. A glorious sailing, bounding drive that made me glad I was alive. And down the fairway, far along, it glowed a lonely white. I played an iron, sure and strong, and clipped it out of sight. And spite of grassy banks between, I knew I'd find it on the green. And so I did. It lay content two paces from the pin. A steady putt, and then it went, oh, most securely in. The very turf rejoiced to see that quite unprecedented three. seaweed smells from sandy caves and time and mist in whiffs incoming tide Atlantic waves slapping the sunny cliffs lark song and sea sounds in the air and splendor splendor everywhere this episode is brought to you by State Farm You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.